Well, what is God really like? Uh, that might seem like a really obvious question to ask at the beginning of uh, a sermon, but I think it's probably, well, no probably, it is uh, the most important question we can ask, isn't it? What is God really like? There, the answer to that question, how we answer that question, has uh, profound implications for our lives. And for some people, it's not just an important question. For some people, it's actually a really problematic question. Uh, For many of God's people, their experience of the Christian life contradicts what they once believed or were once told it would be like. And suffering, sin, unexpected loss, all kinds of things can leave so many of God's people wondering if God really is who he says he is. Is God loving? Does God actually care? Has God forgotten me? And when people start to ask questions like that in a Christian community, how they are responded to is really important. If they are just dismissed... If we fail to listen to the pain that is often behind questions like that, then people like that will leave. And people like that will probably be right to leave. Because the Psalms are often so much more honest than we think appropriate, aren't they? God has given us words to use when we feel alone. Just listen to this from Psalm 77. This is in the Bible. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished? Has his promise failed? Has God forgotten to be merciful? The Bible gives people like us a place to ask questions like that. Uh, The Bible refuses to give us easy answers to questions like that. I need to tell you this evening about a temptation that uh, people like me, people like Andy, uh, face very often. When we're having conversations with people, and when we have the privilege of hearing about difficult situations people have gone through, or temptations, or uh, all kinds of battles and struggles that they have, it's really tempting to think that we have to come up with a kind of snappy, savvy saying that will just deal with all their problems. Uh, That never works. No, the only thing you and I can do, the best thing, the very best thing when people have questions about God, what he's like, is to come back to Scripture. What does God actually say about himself? This this is a great passage, and it runs really to chapter 4, verse uh, 17. I thought about uh, trying to do it in a one and I thought that would be a bit daft. And so we're going to look at it in over two weeks. There's so much here. And this passage is powerful. And it's powerful because in it we are being confronted with what we might call the godness of God. The godness of God. And I've been so struck by this passage this week that I've considered not having headings because I think there is a danger in having headings 
when we're talking about God because we can forget who we're talking about. But I'm going to give you headings. I've got three headings. And here's the first. God knows. God knows. Uh, The passage, it seems to begin with good news, doesn't it? During those many days, the king of Egypt dies. And I say uh, good news deliberately because this was a man who had, uh, before he had died, done incredible evil to God's people. I won't go over that. You can read uh, the first two chapters if if you've missed these sermons. And if you look at that first verse, verse uh, 23, and if you find the comma in that verse, verse 23, I wonder if you can kind of feel that the prospect of change that just kind of hangs in the air after the comma, um, in the gap before the word and. During those days, many, during those many days, the king of Egypt, he died. And in that gap, there's the possibility that things are going to change. The king is dead. He's gone. And it's a cause for celebration. And yet, the more things change, the more things stay the same. And Pharaoh's dead, and yet the people of God, they groan and they cry. Now, that word groan, interestingly, it can be translated as sigh, And I think, I don't know if you'd agree, I think there's something about sighing that is, well, it's incredibly powerful, isn't it? When you just see somebody sighing, what is in a sigh? So often in a sigh, there's resignation, there's disappointment, there's, well, there's exhaustion, isn't there? And God's people often feel like that. God's people often are sighing their way through life. God's people often are oppressed. They're in bondage. That's the case in this passage. They're still trapped. They feel like things are never going to change for them. Lots of us here this evening will have felt that way. And so God's people have no leader. They have got no hope. No hope until the next sentences. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. Now, just look at the verbs. Uh, I think uh, in verses 23 to 25, we've got kind of four verbs of hope, haven't we? God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. Now, you might want to highlight those words on your phone or in your Bible. God remembered. God remembered. And that's a phrase we often hear in Scripture. And when we remember something, um, it's because we've uh, lost it, isn't it? We've forgotten it. Um, Jonathan has got a voice like a megaphone. I heard a cry go up. I was at the kitchen, in the kitchen this week. Cry went up, Daddy, have you seen my watch? And it was right next to me. And he'd uh, left it there. You know, when we uh, say we remember something, it's because we've forgotten it, isn't it? But with God, it's, it's different. God never forgets anything. The only thing God forgets is our sins. And when we read God remembered in Scripture, it means God is acting in line with what He's promised to do, a prior commitment that He's made. 
is going to direct the actions that he takes. Here's a God who's consistent, who is loyal, who is dedicated to his people, who is faithful. And we see that in the names, don't we? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Here's a God whose purposes span centuries and millennia. Uh, This is a God you can entrust yourself to. This is a God you can entrust your family to. God remembers. I love the little phrase at the end of verse 25, God knew and God knew. Uh, I think that phrase, it kind of sums up everything else, doesn't it? It kind of encapsulates uh, all the other things. God knew. God has perfect knowledge. God knows his creation inside out. Scientists are learning more and more about the universe, aren't they? But they're, they're only thinking God's thoughts after him. And the amazing, the wonder of the Christian life is not simply that we know him, but he knows us. It's what Psalm 139 tells us, isn't it? He knows how we're formed. He knows all our tears. He knows all our days, all the hairs on our heads. He knows all our sins. He knows all our suffering. He knows all the things that we've done that we wish we hadn't done. God heard. God saw. You know, to be seen and to be known and to be understood, that is a very, very important thing, isn't it? especially in cases of abuse or mistreatment, is very important in our relationships. If somebody comes to us and says, you know, what you did really hurt me, and that was not our intention, it's very easy to dismiss them, isn't it? But what do people say? People always say, don't they, you never remember what someone said to you. What you remember is how they made you feel. And to feel missed and to feel misunderstood by people, that can be very painful, can't it? There is a Zulu greeting, African greeting. It just says, the greeting says, I see you. And that's a beautiful expression. God is like that. It's what Hagar says, the God who sees me. See, this God is so great, he makes promises that go across a millennia, and yet this God doesn't overlook his people, he doesn't overlook individuals. What does he call his people? The apple of his eye. And that's just so different, isn't it, to the way some people think of God. Some people think God is like a watchmaker who makes, or who made an amazing creation, uh, but once he's made it, he can just let it tick along. Some people think, well, I'm so dirty. God would, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. Well, this is a very different God, isn't it? A God who hears our cries, a God who knows uh, our suffering, a God who's willing to come and to rescue us from slavery. This is a God who is worthy of worship. God knows. But there's a second thing. Uh, Here's the second heading. God, it's not just that God knows, God is. God is. I think if we were going to pick 10 stories to, to, to sum up, maybe just let's say the message of uh, the Old Testament, I think we'd pick chapter 3, don't you think? And in chapter 3, the, the focus, it shifts from uh, a bunch of verbs to a vision. 
And Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush is one of the most dramatic and one of the most powerful stories in the Bible. Now, before we look at it, before we look at what he sees, I want us to think about the one who sees it. Before we think about what he sees, let's think about the one who sees this vision. Where does it happen? When does it happen? Who does it happen to? It happens in the wilderness. That's interesting. It happens at Horeb, also known later as Sinai. And it happens, this vision, it comes to a man who is just profoundly broken. He's been alienated from his people. In chapter 2, he's a Hebrew, and yet he's also an Egyptian. And he's fled, if you remember. And by the time we get to chapter uh, 3, 40 years have passed. He's 80. Uh, You know, a lot can happen in 40 years. And his children would have grown, his muscles uh, would have been uh, wasting a bit, his hair would have been gray. Forty years of musing and wondering, forty years of regrets. And I think there's real irony in verse one. You know, he's keeping a flock. And he's a shepherd. Really, he's a shepherd without any sheep. He's a leader without any people to lead, isn't he? Uh, The people of God are back in Egypt, and here's this man just looking after his father-in-law's flock in Midian. This amazing vision, it comes to a man like that. It comes to a man who's failed, who's lost, and that teaches us something about God, doesn't it? Just reflect on that. Where does it happen? When does it happen? Who does it happen to? Here's the question I want us to focus on really though. What does he actually see? What does he actually see? Well, he sees three things. He sees the angel of the Lord. And that's a figure, a figure who often appears in the Old Testament, what uh, theologians call a theophany. Some people think this is a kind of pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, whatever we think of that. It's nothing less than a revelation of God himself. He sees a bush that's on fire but is not consumed. And lots of people here see a picture of God's people, of Israel. Uh, They see, you know, a pointer to the fact that God's people are indestructible. Calvin uh, took that line. The bush is likened, he says, to the humble and despised people of God. Their tyrannical oppression is not unlike the fire. And yet the, the, the people of God are not consumed. That's encouraging, isn't it? But I want to focus on the fire. I want to focus on the fire. Twice we're told in this vision, twice we're told that the bush is burning and yet it's not consumed. And that makes this fire abnormal. I don't know how many of you guys were in cubs or uh, scouts or brownies or guides or anything like that. What do you need for a fire? You need heat, you need oxygen, you need fuel. But this fire has no fuel. Uh, This fire doesn't actually need this bush, does it? It's really clear in the text that the bush is burning, yet it was not consumed. This fire, if you like, is burning all by itself. 
And lots of people have seen here, lots of theologians have said that this is teaching us something about God, something fundamental about Him. God is self-existing. God is not caused by anything or anyone. And the word they've used to describe this is uh, aseity. Uh, that, that means from himself. And this fire, it needs no fuel to, 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 get, to kind of get it going. God is like that. God is self-sufficient. God is independent. God doesn't need our help. God doesn't rely on us. God is independent from us. We, we can't domesticate God or tame God. We're not doing God a favor. Here's how the confession puts it. God has all life, glory, and goodness, blessedness in and of himself. He alone, to change the, the picture, he alone is the fountain of all being. And so, friends, I hope you can kind of begin to see the good news here. Here's a God who needs nothing. A God who needs nothing from you. And so, when this God, when He pours out blessings on us, God is never doing that to, to manipulate us. He's never doing that to try and get us to pay Him back. That would be as unnecessary as it is impossible. No, He is a God who simply gives to His people because He is good, fundamentally good. The one we are dealing with here, the one who is dealing with us, He is a different category of being altogether. Well, we'll see more of that next week when we think about the I am saying, I am who I am. But friends, here is someone to bow before. Here's someone to marvel at. And here again is one who is worthy of worship. So God knows. God is. Third and finally, verses four to the end, God will. God will. As we move to this next section, the pictures change, and we're moving from verbs and a vision to voices. And from verse 4 to the end of our reading, and as I said, all the way to the middle of chapter 4, there's a conversation between God and between Moses. And when Moses turns to look at the bush in verse 3, God speaks to him. Uh, that in itself uh, teaches us something. It teaches us that we need God to explain himself to us if we're going to know him. A vision is not enough. And God calls to Moses from this bush, do not come near, take off your sandals. The place on which you're standing is holy, holy ground. What is God like? God is holy. God's holiness is the, the very first thing he he communicates to Moses. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but something amazing, something stunning is happening here. God was meeting with him, holy one of Israel. That means he has to take his sandals off. And I was reminded this week as I was thinking about this passage, there's something about fire, isn't there? There's something about fire that attracts us, and yet fire is something to fear, Uh, John Stott, uh, who wrote a wonderful uh, book, The Cross of Christ, uh, years ago. Let me 
read uh, from that book to you just now. Listen to this. The kind of God that appeals to most people today would be easygoing in his tolerance of our offenses. Unhappily, even in the church, we seem to have lost the vision of the majesty of God. There is shallowness and levity among us. Prophets and psalmists would probably say of us, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, let me just read you a phrase that I have never, ever forgotten. He says, we saunter up to God. We saunter up to God. God is holy. God is the Lord. God is sovereign. And you and I, we need to remember that as we come to worship. We need to remember that when we're afraid of people. We need to remember that when we're tempted to sin. What does God's word say? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when God reminds Moses who he is, verse 6, look at his response. Moses hides his face. And yet it's really clear, isn't it? God has not hid his face, verse 7. Listen to what he says. I've surely seen the affliction of my people. It's the same verbs. Moses, I've heard their cries. I know their suffering. I've come down to deliver them. God is like this. Psalm 18 uh, says this, he reached down from on high, he took hold of me, he brought me out into a spacious place, he rescued me because he delighted in me. And every Christian can say those words. We have a God who delights to, to deliver his people. We have a God who is strong enough to set his people free. We've got a God who has come down to us in Jesus, what do we read of him in Matthew 1? He will save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. God is going to deliver, but he's going to work through Moses, verse 10. We see his reaction to this news. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Here's a man who feels a real, a deep sense of inadequacy. He is in God's presence, and yet the thought of coming before Pharaoh terrifies him. I think you and I were so like him, aren't we? We're so often, we're so often more afraid of people than God himself. So often things God calls us to do seem really hard. And often we can think, if something is hard, God, God maybe doesn't want me to do it. Well, no, maybe what he wants is us to rely on him. Maybe it will be an opportunity to grow in our trust. Paul felt like this, didn't he? Paul had a profound sense of weakness. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 1. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. And did we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And Moses felt similar despair to that, didn't he? And yet look at the assurance he's given. I will be with you. Chris is about to start to learn Hebrew, which is an absolute nightmare. But uh, the, the word with... 
the word with. It's a tiny word in the Hebrew. It's just two letters. I will be with you. And that means everything, doesn't it? That is God's covenant promise. I will be with you. What does Jesus say? I will be with you always. I will never leave you. I will be with you. And Moses, you will be back. Moses, here's the sign that I sent you. Let me tell you before you go. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve me on this mountain. Moses, on that day, you will really know that I was with you. And we'll come to that. But I want to leave you somewhere else this evening. Tonight, I want to let Exodus 3 lead you to another amazing chapter in God's Word in the New Testament this time, Romans 8. Because as God reveals himself to us this night, tonight, as God speaks to us, what he's really saying is, if I am for you, who can be against you? That, I think, is what he said to Moses. That's what he said and what he says to us. Whatever we face in life, God knows, God is, and God will. And he alone, he alone, friends, is the one who is worthy and who is worthy of all our worship. And so let's pray together.